the universe as we see it is informed almost exclusively by light. We measure the light from distant objects and that tells us what's out there in the universe. But very recently, a new type of signal has come onto the scene that we've been able to detect and determine what's out there in the universe beyond all forms of light. And that is in terms of gravitational waves. Gravitational waves exist all throughout the universe and are produced by masses, particularly by large compact masses moving in the vicinity of other large compact masses. These ripples in space-time propagate throughout the universe at the speed of light and can affect everything that they interfere with or pass through as they journey throughout space. They give us a unique way to probe the universe and are revealing more and more information than many of us had ever thought possible. What are some of the ways we're using gravitational waves to investigate some of the most obscure reaches of space and time? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Gravitational waves come in all different wavelengths. So far, we've mostly been able to detect the very short wavelength gravitational waves, the ones produced by small black holes that are in the final stages of inspiraling and merging into one another. But in the future, and perhaps if we're lucky, in the very near future, we'll be able to detect not only longer gravitational waves, but perhaps the longest gravitational waves of them all, the ones produced by the largest black hole pairs in the universe, and perhaps even the ones produced during the last vestiges of cosmic inflation, the start of our universe that set up the hot Big Bang and everything that's happened since. And here, to help us through this, to help us understand what's out there and what it takes to look for these longest wavelength gravitational waves, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Caitlin Witt. Dr. Witt is an incoming postdoctoral fellow at Northwestern University's Center for Interdisciplinary Exploration and Research in Astrophysics and is joint with Adler Planetarium. I'm so excited to have her here and welcome her to the show. Thank you, Caitlin. It's my pleasure to have you here. Hello, it's so great to be here. Yeah, welcome. So I'd like to start by thinking not about these gravitational waves themselves, but what these gravitational waves affect. Is it fair to say that if you envision your universe, whether you view it as like a three-dimensional grid that has ripples traveling through it or a sheet of space-time that you can watch the surface vibrate up and down, is it fair to say that gravitational waves affect absolutely everything else that exists in your universe? Yes, that's entirely correct. And that's one of the reasons that I think gravitational waves are so interesting. Like you mentioned, one of the best visualizations of gravitational waves we have are these ripples that move over the sheet 
of space-time, sort of like ripples on a pond when you throw in a rock. However, space is 3D. So those ripples, rather than being like an up and down motion, are actually a stretching and squeezing motion when we think about them as space in three dimensions, which, like you said, affect everything around us. The distance from me to my desk and from me here in Illinois to you on the other side of the country. You know, this is this is a remarkable way to think about it. I remember when humanity detected our very, very first gravitational wave directly. It was from a merger of two black holes that were about, oh, I want to say they were around a billion light years away. They were, they were pretty far away. Um, and these two black holes, one was 36 times the mass of the sun, one was 29 times the mass of the sun, and when they merged together, they produced a new black hole of 62 times the mass of the sun. And if you're paying attention closely, you're going to say, hang on, 36 plus 29 does not equal 62. It equals 65. What happened to the other three? And the answer is those three solar masses worth of energy got converted from the mass of a black hole into these gravitational waves, into these ripples that propagated all throughout the universe. And from a billion light years away, they caused the Earth, just like you said, this spheroidal Earth, to compress and uh, expand in a variety of directions. It's almost like if you were to take a, a squishy ball and push it from the sides and watch it bulge out at the top, and then you push it from the top and bottom and watch it bulge out from the sides. It like it goes through this stretching and compressing in alternating perpendicular directions. And I think from a billion light years away with all of that mass converted into energy, I think the whole thing managed to compress all of planet Earth by a maximum of less than the width of a blade of grass. Yes. The, the fact that that much energy, A, can reach this far at all, and B, could only do that much to such a big scale as the Earth is really incredible. I think it's a real testament to how absolutely sensitive these gravitational wave detectors really are that they can they can say oh wow like look at how tiny tiny the amplitude of these gravitational waves are they they change the distance between things by one part in 10 to the 20 one part in 10 to the 24 and here we are actually detecting that over, you know, just a fraction of a second in time when these signals arrive. That that really tells me what a not just scientific achievement it is to detect these gravitational waves, but what a technological achievement it is as well. Yeah, it's really incredible. I think one of the one of my favorite visualizations for just how tiny of a measurement we need to make to detect a gravitational wave is that the interferometers and the lasers that are used to measure these changes in space need to be sensitive enough to measure the distance from Earth to the moon more precisely than the width of a hair. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's that's very very precise, and of course because these arms aren't going from the Earth to the Moon because they're only going, you know, about four miles down the road before being reflected back. Um, we actually have to measure this not just to the width of a hair, but to a tiny, tiny fraction of a single wavelength of light. And yet, we're able to do it. We've been able to do it for somewhere around like a hundred total events so far. Um, and now... Uh, we're looking at maybe going beyond LIGO, maybe going beyond these ground-based, short-arm, fast gravitational wave detectors um, in two different ways. One of them is by saying, let's go to space, let's build longer wavelength arms, and let's look for mergers between more massive black holes. Maybe we'll even find something merging with a supermassive black hole. And that's what LISA, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, is going to do. But there's another way to try and detect gravitational waves at all, and that leverages pulsars, the greatest natural clocks in the universe and tries to measure tiny, tiny timing differences between them owing to the passage of gravitational waves. Can you, I know this is your specialty and this is what you work on, so can we maybe start at the beginning of this and can you tell me what is a pulsar, what's special about a pulsar, and what makes it such a good natural clock? Absolutely. So to start, a pulsar is a neutron star. So this is a remnant of an intermediate mass star that has finished burning as a star and has since died. And its core has collapsed into essentially a ball of subatomic particles that are as dense as the nucleus of an atom. And not only do we need to find one of these incredible objects out in space, but also it just so happens to be emitting radio waves. So this very dense object is spinning as it's living out its stellar remnant life. And it basically puts out a beam, sort of like a lighthouse. And this beam, as long as it's not aligned with the axis of the neutron star's spin, will sweep around out through space. So if we're very, very lucky, that beam will point occasionally towards the Earth. And then the little point out in space that contains the neutron star will suddenly get brighter and then get dimmer until the neutron star turns all the way around again and then flashes us with that beam of radiation again. So by looking at a time series of this point in space over time and seeing how bright it gets over time, we would then see what we call a pulse. So a quick brightening and then dimming back to the normal nothing that we would see from just the neutron star. That sounds well and good for an individual pulsar, um, but 
I'm, I'm familiar enough with pulsars to know that not all pulsars are the same. For example, if we look at the Crab Nebula, which is the remnant of a supernova that went off about a thousand years ago, uh, we can look at the center of the Crab Nebula and find, lo and behold, there is a pulsar there. And there is a pulsar that happens to be lined up with our line of sight. When we look at it, we can see it pulsing. And like you said, most pulsars, or rather most neutron stars out there that are pulsing, mm, probably we can't see the pulses. Like they may or may not be pulsing, but we can't see them. However, some of them we can see. Now a young pulsar, like the one at the Crab Nebula, they only rotate slowly. We might only get somewhere between 1 and 10 pulses per second for a young one. But there are old ones, ones that are at least hundreds of millions of years old, where we can see up to hundreds of pulses a second. And these older pulsars... Um, they tend to be more stable. Uh, their pulses tend to be more regular. They don't do what's called glitch as much. And I think of a glitch as basically an earthquake, but for a pulsar, where every time we get an earthquake on Earth, uh, it's not the biggest thing you notice, but the interior of Earth rearranges itself to a more gravitationally stable configuration and Earth's rotation speeds up a little bit. Um, so when pulsars glitch or quake, uh, they can change their period. But these fastest spinning pulsars, the, the ones that spin by and by and by and by the fastest, uh, they tend to be the most stable and to me, that's exactly the recipe for making a good natural clock. Yes, you're exactly right. So it's actually a little counterintuitive that the oldest pulsars would be spinning faster because you would expect them to lose a little bit of that momentum over time. But millisecond pulsars are often known as recycled pulsars where they've actually stolen some mass from a binary companion and therefore gained more angular momentum spun fast and spun faster. This angular momentum from them spinning so quickly and being so dense helps them stay such stable emitters, which is why we can time them so precisely. All right, let me ask you actually a little bit about that. When I think about what rotates faster, what rotates slow, I normally go all the way back to like watching a figure skater at the Olympics and I think, okay, if the figure skater's got her arms out at her side and she's got her legs splayed out and she starts spitting, if she wants to speed up, all she has to do is bring her arms in towards the center and her legs in towards the central axis of rotation because what makes you spin in a universe where angular momentum is conserved is the speed of your spinning is related to your moment of inertia, which is how your mass is distributed. If your mass is far away from the axis about which you're spinning, uh, you're going to rotate relatively slowly. But as you bring your arms, your legs, as you bring more of your mass closer towards the center, uh, the faster you're going to spin. That's just how angular momentum is conserved. So if I'm a pulsar, and I'm siphoning mass off of a binary companion, 
what is it that's going to make me speed up in my rotation? What's going to cause that? How does that work? Is it at all related to the figure skater or is it something else entirely? Yes, it's absolutely related to the figure skater. And I'm glad you asked because it is a little bit surprising because you'd expect sort of as you add mass onto the neutron star, it gets a little bit bigger. So you would think, oh, it's like you're putting your arms out farther. So you would spin slower. But what's actually happening is you don't actually just have one figure skater. There's two of them because there's this binary companion that there's mass being stolen from. And these two things are orbiting each other. So not only is there just the angular momentum of each system independently, there's also the orbital angular momentum of the entire system together. I like to visualize it like like a, like a spinning ride like the teacups at Disney World, where each thing is spinning and also the whole system is spinning. So by one object losing mass, the entire system is changing its orbital angular momentum. And some of that then goes to the new millisecond pulsar. Okay, so it's... It's almost like uh, it's almost like a pairs dance where where one member can donate some material to the other and the other one actually spins up as as it pulls the other one's mass in closer and closer to its center. Uh, its spin is going to start speeding up. And will that the act of that happening, will that both change the spin of the donor star and also the orbital properties that the star and the pulsar orbit each other with? Exactly. I really love that image of a pair's dance. Uh, well, they're not they're not equal pairs. These are very unequal pairs, but uh but even with that unequal pair, it seems like, okay, that's how that's how you make a millisecond pulsar. That's how you get something that's spinning rapidly, that's stable. And I guess it has to do one more thing. I know of at least one system where a pulsar is orbiting another massive object. I think it might be a stellar remnant also, um, where we've seen that pulsar... It was pulsing, it was looking good, and then all of a sudden its pulsing stopped. And I think that was because uh, this lighthouse beacon, because of the presence of the other companion, uh, it stopped passing by us. And I actually don't know whether that particular pulsar system uh, started pulsing again or if it continues to not pulse. But is that something else we have to worry about? That if you have more than one object in the system, if one of them is a pulsar, that the other one might someday drag it so that its beam is no longer intersecting with Earth? Yes, that's absolutely possible. Most millisecond pulsars are actually still in some type of binary orbit. So not only do we need to worry about timing the pulsar's pulses themselves, but we need to worry about the orientation of the system. Because, for example, the binary companion might move in between Earth and the pulsar, and then it's eclipse. We just can't see it at all. And there are some where they're in such extreme orbits that the orbit might evolve really significantly. And that 
yes, could change whether we are within this lighthouse or not. Well, that also brings up a point that I, I do think I remember correctly about millisecond pulsars, though, which is you don't actually need every single pulse to do really good science with them, that these things in general, unless they glitch, and in general they don't, uh, are so stable that if you looked at a millisecond pulsar and you measured its period and you looked away for like a year, you can look back and you could determine after a year whether 30 billion pulses have happened or 30 billion and one pulses have happened, that you can look back at any individual millisecond pulsar that you've measured its baseline pulsation well enough, and you can come back and know exactly how many pulses have passed since the last time you looked at it. Yes, exactly. And that is one requirement that we really need to observe these pulsars for a long enough time to actually make them useful timers to use to measure other things like gravitational waves. Because one telescope can't just look at a pulsar all the time. Telescopes are too important. There's too many good things to look at. So what we need to be able to do is predict a model for when these pulses will arrive so accurately that not only can we look away and just observe the pulsar once a month or so, we need to be able to look for any deviations from that model to see if we're seeing any changes. This is really great because uh, now, now we're bringing these two things together, right? You brought up gravitational waves again, and that was what we started talking about. These ripples that are propagating all through space. Anywhere you have a gravitational source, like you had two black holes or two neutron stars in spiral and merge, or maybe you had a what we call a stochastic background of gravitational waves, sort of this omnidirectional long wavelength background of ripples in space-time left over from the epoch just before the start of the hot big bang these waves are all traveling throughout space and i would assume that whenever i look at a pulsar i have to look in a particular direction that light has to propagate from the pulsar to us here on Earth where we can observe them. Uh, and that should mean that anything that happens to space along that line of sight where the pulsar's light is traveling from the pulsar to us, is it true that any gravitational wave that passes through that space is going to alter the timing of any pulsar that we look at? Yes, exactly. So... We, we started off by talking about the gravitational waves that have been detected by LIGO here on Earth, and then how someday we'll have a bigger interferometer up in space. Using pulsars to detect gravitational waves is like having an even bigger interferometer, only we're using naturally occurring objects rather than lasers with even longer arms and baselines. So anything that comes between us and the pulsar, whether it's a gravitational wave or the interstellar medium or a binary companion will disrupt the timing of the pulsar. But a lot of those things can be modeled really, really perfectly. So then 
by considering all of those things together in our really complex data sets, we can then look for any signal for a gravitational wave, such as from a supermassive black hole binary, or all of the gravitational waves at these low frequencies added together into a stochastic gravitational wave background. I mean, that that part sounds really impressive to me because when we talk about LIGO, you can talk about, okay, we have four kilometer arms and maybe we can get a thousand reflections in. So maybe effectively we have a few thousand kilometers on our laser arm. If you're talking about Lisa up in space, you know, I think they're planning on having this be much larger. Now we're talking about like hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of kilometers. But when we talk about pulsars, these are objects we find all throughout the galaxy, including in the galactic halo, including in globular clusters. These can be pulsars that are thousands or tens of thousands of light years away. We're not talking about kilometers anymore. We're talking about light years. We're talking about baselines that you would measure in like 10 to the 15, 10 to the 16 kilometers, really, really big numbers of kilometers in terms of distance. How could you possibly attempt to tease out the effect of like one gravitational wave event or one merger of two ultramassive black holes or the entire cumulative sum of the background of gravitational waves produced during inflation, how can you possibly seek to detect this just by looking at a bunch of different pulsars over time? So I think the basic answer is very, very carefully. We need to think about anything that could be affecting the pulsar's pulses. But what's lucky is we know a lot about how radio waves travel through space. So we can model all of these things separately and then combine them. So we can talk about things like the structure of the galaxy and where the pulsars are located and where the spiral arms of our galaxy are. These things are really useful to study not only gravitational waves, but also the space between us and the pulsars. But what's really great is that we don't just have one pulsar. We are pretty picky about which pulsars we can use in a timing array. So for example, we typically don't use ones that are within globular clusters because there's so many interactions going on in that dense environment. But we do have quite a few. So what that means is that if we're looking to pick out a single gravitational wave signal, it's not going to affect only one pulsar at a time. That's how we know it's actually a gravitational wave, is if it induces the expected patterns in all of our pulsars together. Now, would we need to worry about timing differences here? Would we need to worry like, oh, if there's a gravitational wave merger that goes off and this pulsar is 10,000 light years away in this direction and that pulsar is 5,000 light years away in that other direction and this other pulsar is 15,000 light years away in another direction, do we have to worry that, oh, uh, these gravitational waves are going to affect the timing of each of these pulsars 
differently, um, that we can't just look for one continuous change at the same moment over time. Uh, is that a problem we can reckon with at all? Yes, that's definitely something that we need to consider. But with these types of gravitational waves, it's actually a bonus because that means we can actually figure out where the gravitational wave is coming from. The other interesting thing is that these gravitational waves orbit at very long periods. Rather than mergers of stellar mass black holes like LIGO can see, these are only changing on the timescales of years to decades, which means that they will be orbiting that way for years to thousands of years, which means that while we need to consider what the signal would be at each pulsar, all of them will be seeing something. We just need to combine that together to actually triangulate where the gravitational wave is coming from. So what I'm getting from this is you're basically saying each pulsar is kind of like an analogy to a seismometer here on Earth, except instead of looking for earthquakes, you're looking for spacequakes. You're looking at something that's causing the fabric of space to quake and ripple in a, in a certain way. And so if I can say, oh, here's how it's affecting one pulsar over long times, and here's how it's affecting a second and a third, the more of them I get, the better I'm going to be able to pinpoint exactly how far away and in what direction this gravitational wave generating event occurred. Is that is that at all a robust analogy? I think that's a really good analogy. And I think what will add to the analogy is maybe if we think of our earthquake as very slow and drawn out. So rather than seeing the start or the end of the earthquake, we're only seeing the middle. And each of the pulsars will see this long process. So we don't need to worry about this one is seeing something and it hasn't gotten to the other pulsar yet. It's affecting essentially everywhere in space, or at least along the size of our galaxy-sized gravitational wave detector. But we can say, oh, it's affecting this one in this direction, and at the time that it reaches the one in the other direction, we can sync it up to say, oh, it evolved in a way that we would expect for a gravitational wave. So I'm quite a bit older than you, and I've got a few marbles still rattling around up here uh, trying to find the like peg that they fell into like 15 years ago when I was learning this. Um, but I think I might have gotten two of them that just clicked into place. Um, one of them, if I remember right, is that for a stellar mass black hole, for things like LIGO detects, um, you get these in-spirals and mergers, and it's that very, very last moment of the in-spiral and merger that we're actually able to detect. And when we detect that, what we're getting is actually we're seeing where the masses are changing their position the fastest. The gravitational waves are increasing in frequency and they're increasing in amplitude. And that's how that merger signal is so identifiable. 
but the heavier in mass you are, the greater the distance you orbit at when you emit gravitational waves. So does that mean that these in-spiraling signals that are generating these ripples across space-time that over the time scale of, you know, a few thousand years where it's going to propagate from one pulsar to another, does that mean the gravitational wave signal will be essentially unchanged? That if we can tease out, oh, there's this gravitational wave signal rippling through space and it's affecting pulsar 1 and pulsar 2 and pulsar 3 and pulsar 4, that it's going to give roughly the same imprint on all of the pulsars that we're seeing? Exactly. Supermassive black hole binaries, like the ones that generate these low frequency gravitational waves that pulsar timing arrays can see, evolve very, very slowly. So things like in-spiraling neutron stars or black holes will show like a stable ripple pattern for a little while that gravitational wave detectors can see it and then change very, very quickly. We're looking for that stable part of the gravitational wave signal, where it's almost just a perfect sinusoidal ripple. It'll change a little bit over that thousand year lifetime, but it's small enough that we can predict how it will change. We don't need to measure these very complex gravitational interactions near merger. So the most extreme black hole binary I know of uh, is in a system called OJ287, uh, where you have, I believe, like a 20 billion solar mass black hole that's orbited by 150 million solar mass black hole. And they orbit on something like, I want to say, like an 11-year period. Um, now, that's going to produce very strong ripples in space-time, but it should also produce very consistent ripples in space-time. Is that in the ballpark of the same type of signal that you'd hope to detect using uh, this pulsar timing technique? I certainly hope so. The interesting thing about OJ-287 is that it's one of the only confirmed supermassive black hole binaries that we've been able to see because we can see it orbit on such a stable, I think you said 11 year period, which is great because we know when to look for it. Uh, the unfortunate thing about OJ-287 is that it's a little too far for, from us and the ratio of masses between the two black holes is a little bit too extreme for pulsar timing arrays to see right now. A stronger system would be a little bit closer and the masses of the two black holes would be closer to equal. But this really is the type of system that we're looking for with a few minor tweaks. Well, does this mean that we have to get two black holes that are each like up in the billions of solar masses? Or would this signal actually be better if we had, say, a closer analog of OJ-287, uh, where the primary mass, where the mass of the primary black hole was lower? Would that be a way to boost the signal? Or do you really need to raise the mass of the secondary to get there? That's a good question. And I'm trying to envision how the distance and the mass will work together. But what is really important is that 
rather than just being able to look at the combination of masses of the system, such as in sum, so the total mass of the system, we actually need to look for a different combination of the masses called a chirp mass, which is sort of like a reduced mass, which tells us a little bit about the scale of the masses in the system. For an unequal mass system, that chirp mass is going to be closer to the value of the smaller black hole. So if we want to get a big signal, we need a system with a big chirp mass. So that means we need a big secondary. All right. So there are a lot of things that can alter the timing of pulsars or that can alter what we perceive as the timing of pulsars. Uh, if there's a cloud of gas in the way, um, if there's a cloud of material that appears around our solar system, um, all of that can slow down light or can impede the path of light, including pulsar light. Um, the only way I know of to disentangle what's happening to light because of a purely gravitational effect versus what's happening because of any other effect that's related to matter is if something is happening because of a gravitational wave or any other change in the curvature of space, um, that's going to affect all wavelengths of light equally. Whereas if something is happening uh, like due to dust, due to gas, due to intervening matter, uh, that's naturally going to affect light of different wavelengths in different ways. Is this something that you leverage doing pulsar timing astronomy to look for gravitational waves to sort of separate out what could be signal from what we're almost certain is noise? Absolutely. And one benefit of the fact that light is affected by matter between us and the pulsar differently than gravitational waves is the fact that those light and frequency dependent effects can actually be measured. We observe pulsars along a range of frequencies, so we can actually see, oh, this is how much interstellar medium effect there is, and we can actually correct for it. Another bonus of having multiple pulsars is the fact that the interstellar medium is not going to be the same between each pulsar. So if we see an effect that is common to all of the pulsars, we know that's probably not due to the interstellar medium, unless, for example, we were within a perfect spherical bubble of interstellar medium here on Earth. But the effect of a gravitational wave induces a very specific pattern that's correlated in space. Um, gravitational waves are quadrupolar, which means that the effect in some directions will be related to the effect in other directions in a very specific pattern. So by teasing that out, we can differentiate any interstellar medium effects or solar system effects from an actual gravitational wave. 
you know, that's really cool. That's I'd always thought like, oh, when a gravitational wave passes through Earth, it's like it it compresses in one direction and gets expanded in the perpendicular direction, and then it compresses in that perpendicular direction and expands in the original direction and goes back and forth like that. But it totally makes sense that if the light from the pulsar is getting stretched and compressed alternatingly with the specific frequency uh, in those alternating directions, then you're going to be able to say, oh, when I look at all of the other pulsars out there, because it's the same gravitational wave source passing through them, those orientations are going to be correlated. Those orientations are going to be related to each other. So if I see a signal in one pulsar, in two and three and four pulsars, I can look at that and say, oh, does this all correspond to the same signal? And only if the answer is yes, is this something I'm interested in? Exactly. So for different types of gravitational waves, we do this in a fairly similar way. So for a single supermassive black hole binary that's emitting a gravitational wave, we can model what we think that gravitational wave would do to each of the pulsars as well as the Earth. But if we're looking for something like a stochastic gravitational wave background, which is more like a specific noise signal, the only thing we can tease out is the effect of the Earth, because the Earth is common to all of the baselines, all of our sort of pulsar-made interferometer arms that are looking to detect these gravitational waves. Does this mean, I'm just thinking here, does this mean if we were anywhere else in the galaxy or in the universe um, that we would measure these pulsars to all have relatively different properties to how we measure them here on Earth? Um, do these pulsars not only change over time dependent on how their binary companions orbit them, but do they change dependent on where you are in space as well? Oh, that's an excellent question. So if, for example, there were a gravitational wave and its effect is different at different places in space, in an individual pulsar, there are some things we need to time that could look similar to some types of gravitational waves. For example, you mentioned a binary companion and things like we need to fit for the pulsar's location on the sky and how far it is away from us because these things will change and change the way we see it on the course of the year as the Earth moves around the sun. But we then need to fit for that in addition to any gravitational wave signals and make sure everything is consistent together because some things can confuse the other measurements. So I think going back to your question, I think that might be true because the gravitational wave would be different at different points in space. So that fitting that we need to do all together would turn out a little bit different. Wow, that's that's really cool. And that, that also really... Um impresses on me how difficult your job is. If you're someone trying to extract these gravitational wave signals in this pulsar data against the uh, 
I don't know what to call it, against a cosmic ocean of background noise, um, there must just be so many things that you need to properly account for in order to make sure that what you're, what you're observing and what conclusions you're teasing out of this are actual signal and not some, you know, confounding factor of uh, various types of noise together that you're mistaking for a signal. It, it seems like being careful in exactly this way uh, would be a real challenge. It is. And it, what it does is it takes a lot of time and a lot of computing power. So each pulsar, I think, has 80 or so parameters that we need to fit to model just one pulsar as accurately as we can. And then pulsar timing arrays will be made up of dozens of pulsars together. So when we have now timed pulsars for about 15 years that we're putting all of this data together, we have getting on up towards about 70 pulsars that we're combining data on. Each of them have 80 parameters that need to be subtly adjusted. And then we have gravitational wave and noise parameters that we need to adjust as well. It's a big headache. Wow. Um, but somehow you're able to do it. And I, I know, or at least I know nothing's been announced yet, or I would have heard about it and written about it and probably fanboyed out over it like no one would believe. Um, I know we haven't yet detected a definitive signal in the pulsar timing data of a gravitational wave, um, but do we have an idea of what that first signal, if something does rise above the noise threshold right now, do we have any idea of what types of sources are most likely to create the type of signal that we could observe with today's technology. Yes. So what we expect, the first type of low frequency gravitational wave that we will see with the pulsar timing array is the stochastic gravitational wave background from supermassive black hole binaries. So this is that some signal that I mentioned earlier of all of the gravitational waves in the universe all washing over us, like you described it as an ocean. Rather than a single ripple, it's all the sun noisy scruff that is summed together. And what we expect that to look like is a correlated red noise single, signal in our data. So what that means is that it's going to be a type of noise that is not purely random. It's a little bit related in time. And the way that's described is the spectrum of the noise signal. So low frequencies we expect will be more correlated than short frequencies. So that, or than high frequencies, short periods. So that means that on long time scales, things look related and on short time scales, they look a little bit less related. So is this treating red the same way we treat it in electromagnetic astronomy, where we're saying red is longer wavelengths and blue is shorter wavelengths? 
Yes, so I think that's where the name comes from, where there's more power at the long timescales or long periods, like red light as the longest period of light. Right, and that makes sense as to why you'd see it, uh, because when you do the transformation and you talk about frequency, uh, long wavelength is low frequency, and that's and that's where you think you're going to have the uh, the biggest correlations. Exactly. So this is why this is a very long game that we're playing. We need to observe pulsars for as long as we can to get down to those low frequencies where there's going to be a lot of power in this noise. Now, when I was uh, looking at pulsars, even though we call them millisecond pulsars, um, I think we're able to tell the timing of the best millisecond pulsars down to about microsecond precision, where over long periods of time, you can get these, these pulsar periods to be extremely accurate down to about microsecond accuracy for, per, for each pulse. Um, if you're talking about taking these observations over really long time scales, um, how long have we been able to measure pulsars with the current precision we can measure them? And um, how long have we been doing it versus how long do we think we need to do it to uncover this stochastic gravitational wave background from all of the supermassive black hole binaries in the universe? It's an excellent question. So my collaboration, the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves, has been collecting and combining data for almost 15 years now. But pulsars were able to be timed really well even before that. But this is when we started combining them all at the same time. So we've been able to do it for quite a bit longer than 15 years, but this is when we started combining data. And what does that uh, mean in comparison to how long you believe you'd need to do it uh, to um, to expose this background? Is this like an any day now thing, or is this like an any decade now thing, or is this uh, any any lifetime now thing? <laughs> I certainly hope any lifetime now. Um, the joke we like to make in the community is. It's been about, we've been waiting for the next five to 10 years for the last five to 10 years. <laughs> so we certainly hope it will be within the near future. What we're starting to be able to see is some inkling that there might be a common red noise process in our data set. However, we haven't been able to detect any of the unique correlations between the different pulsars that would signal this is definitely due to gravitational waves rather than some other noise process. So for that, we need at least a few more years of data. Well, that makes that makes sense. Um, now, you mentioned you worked for the uh, Nanograv collaboration, and I'm just going to come out with the acronym because I don't remember how to unpackage it all like that. Uh, but that's only for the North American network. And as we know, we have radio telescopes and radio telescope networks all over the world. So 
um, are there efforts made so that NanoGrab and the other groups aren't working in isolation? Are there efforts made to pool all of your data together so that all of the groups who are engaging in this endeavor can cumulatively take advantage of all of the group's combined measurements? Absolutely. And what's great about that is because there are some pulsars that North American telescopes just can't see. Some of them just are on the other side of the world from us. So by combining with teams across the world, that includes some in the Southern Hemisphere, we can use all the pulsars possible and also get all of our expertise and excellent timing data put together. However, what makes that really complicated is we've then raised our number of pulsars, so the data sets are a lot bigger, and we're combining data from multiple telescopes. And some of these might be observing at different frequencies or observed on different days. So the amount of data really just explodes. So while it's definitely going to be the way to go to make sure we can make a concrete detection of gravitational waves. It is a hard problem and one that takes quite a bit of time. So the data releases don't come out quite as often as they do from the individual collaborations. You know, that kind of makes sense, but it's also kind of unfortunate. One of the things that keeps coming up uh, as I do these podcasts with people in different subfields of astronomy and astrophysics is the importance of having properly calibrated data. And what I'm sort of gleaning from this discussion with you is uh, whether your data is properly calibrated or not for your collaboration depends on what your collaboration's looking at and what you're optimizing for. So if you're looking at something, and I'm just making up numbers here, if you're looking for something that has a frequency of... Uh, 300 kilohertz and some other collaboration is looking with a frequency of 500,000 kilohertz or 5,000 kilohertz or whatever, um, if those numbers aren't the same, their data is going to be calibrated differently, their noise is going to be optimized differently, and it might not be easy to combine your data with their data to draw a unified conclusion about what's going on in the universe. Is this is this like kind of part of the nature of the problem you deal with when you try and have these different collaborations talk to one another? I think that's a good analogy because each telescope will observe at a little bit of a different frequency. Maybe this one is looking at exactly 1500 megahertz, but the next one is centered up at 1600 megahertz. And also, they're observing on different days and at different times, and each telescope is being recorded against a different clock because they're on a different continent. So we need to make sure that all these clocks are measured completely accurately or if there's any offsets that we can characterize them. And then each of those parameters that we need to fit for each pulsar, I mentioned there are about 80 it will increase by using multiple telescopes data. And we want as much data as we can, but at some point it's going to take longer to fit all of that data perfectly than we have time for. 
Geez, I have so many questions. All right, let me ask you a question that's been sitting in my head for a while uh, that's a little bit unrelated to gravitational waves uh, because, um, you know, there's a lot to keep track of here. When we talk about how pulsars evolve over time in terms of orientation, in terms of where their binary companions point them, in terms of pulse period and glitches and other things. Um, if we were to get something like the equivalent of the golden record that's attached to Voyager from another civilization, and we were to say, oh, look what they did, just like we did in our baby space infancy. Uh, they sent out a map of where they are relative to the location of various pulsars. Um, is that something where we'd be able to look at them and we'd be able to say, aha, we know exactly where they are? Or is that would that only give us a map that's unique to them at their particular location in space, at their particular moment in time when they sent that off? Would that, would that be a useless map for anyone other than the people at that location that observe those pulsars with those periods from that space? Um, did we did we send off something into the universe that you know an advanced alien species if they were able to get it and reconstruct what we did that they would go oh look at the cute little science babies <laughs> that's a really good question and it's interesting to think about because there are some aspects of pulsars that are very direction dependent so for example we talked about the effect of the interstellar medium if someone else were observing a pulsar from a different direction, they wouldn't see the same effect and they wouldn't characterize it with the same value. But there are other things I think that would be the same. So things like the pulsar's spin period or its spin period derivative, the way it's spinning down over time. So in that sense, I think maybe we could do it um the one interesting thing is that it's actually very difficult to measure a distance to a pulsar because we can see them out in space but we can't see them all the time to do things like take a normal parallax measurement we can only do it from the timing so it's pretty hard to get that distance accurate but if for example from our perspective, two pulsars are near each other on the sky. And from someone else's perspective, those pulsars were on opposite sides of their sky because they were located between them. That could be helpful. Would this also be something where maybe uh, the Gaia data would come in helpful? Not that Gaia is capable of seeing pulsars, but if that many of these pulsars have companion stars, would Gaia be able to measure the parallax distances to the companion stars and therefore since we know they're part of the same system we can figure out the distance to the pulsar i think that has been done and i would be very interested to see if anything comes of having the bigger gaia data set that was just released i think the thing that needs to happen is you need to be very sure that the white dwarf you're seeing is actually the binary companion of the pulsar which might be a little bit hard to confirm, 
But if you look at, for example, you know, the orbital period of it, it might be able to be linked up. All right. So, so you wouldn't say no. You'll just say uh, it would be difficult, but maybe it'll be possible. I certainly hope it could be. But my expertise lies more in the gravitational waves. So I don't think I would have the knowledge to confirm whether those two data sets were actually interacting. Well, fair enough on that. Um, so let's go, let's go back into gravitational waves then. Um, you talked about how this sort of stochastic background of gravitational waves from all of the supermassive binary black holes in the universe will probably be the first signal that we detect just because it's everything combined summed up all together. Um, but are there other candidates for what we could detect. I know one of them is this potential gravitational wave background that's predicted from inflation. And I know the beauty of that is that we can predict the spectrum of that background exquisitely. But I know the drawback of that is that we cannot predict the amplitude of that background at all. Uh, and then the other thing I would think might stick out is, okay, I know it'll only happen really rarely, but what would you get if you had a supermassive binary black hole merger? And would it be possible, I know one of the oddball things we've observed are these supermassive black holes um, that merge and clearly get a gravitational kick to them, likely because of the combination of the spin and orbit properties that they have. Some of them appear to get kicked so hard that they actually get ejected from their host galaxy completely. Would something like that, if we happen to be watching these pulsars at the time that a gravitational wave generated from such an event passed through them, would that be something that could stick out against the background of stochastic noise? Um, and is it possible that either from inflation or a rare ultramassive binary merger, uh, that that could turn out to be the first uh, robust pulsar timing gravitational wave signal we get? An excellent question. And I think there are a few different categories of gravitational waves that you touched on. So I'll start with the first one, which is a different type of stochastic gravitational wave background. And this is why the characterization of that red noise spectrum is going to be so important. We expect that the first one we would see is from supermassive black hole binaries, which also has a very well-defined spectral shape but we don't know the amplitude, just like you mentioned the for inflationary gravitational waves. So what we would need to do if we were to make a detection is keep timing pulsars so we can make sure we are measuring the spectrum of that stochastic gravitational wave background accurately so we can determine exactly where it's coming from. And for example, both might be true. And we would need to see how those two different spectra are overlapping. Well, that's interesting. Does that mean if we get our first signal, 
there could be a component of that signal that's due to the gravitational wave background from inflation and there could be a component of that signal that's due to all of the binary black holes in the universe all of the massive binary black holes in the universe and that the way we'd work to disentangle it is we'd sort of say okay we know what one of these looks like, so let's do the best fit amplitude to the whole spectrum that we see, and that's the inflationary background, and then we subtract that out, and what's left is the uh, ultramassive binary black hole background. So, I'm trying to think of how we would do this, and I think the answer is that we would need to analyze each frequency that we're sensitive to independently because then rather than having to actually model out a time series which as we've said is some random process due to this noise we can actually do all of this in frequency space and so we might see a spectrum that has a kink in it rather than just being a pure power law and one of those spectra has a lower spectral index than the other one. So we can say, oh, this one is dominant at low frequencies, but at higher frequencies, the shallower one is winning. And looking for the interplay of those two signals, after we have enough data to be sensitive to high enough frequencies to see any overlap would be the way to do it. You know, that's that's really cool, and I'm really happy to hear that. But also, uh, you have no idea how much anxiety you just filled me with as I wonder, oh, no. Um, we make so many assumptions all the time about how we want to consider the simplest explanation for something. Like, oh, there's dark matter out there. Let's assume it's all the same thing. Well, what if it isn't? What if we have multi-component dark matter where part of it has some property and part of it has some other property? Um, boy, that, that just opens up so many more possibilities for how dark matter could explain the full suite of observations that we have. And so I imagine... When you do this analysis, you're doing it assuming that 100% of the gravitational waves you're going to see like this do come from a single source. But, um, of course, it's the universe and we're observing it like this for the first time ever. So who knows what we're going to find and who knows what kind of universe we're actually going to wind up living in that the universe is going to say, hey, I'm like this, not like that. Um Boy, I, I do. I now you have me like doubting so many things. Like, oh, what are we throwing away by making the simplest assumption instead of assuming that what if it's more complex? At least in this sense, I I think I can comfort you because I think we essentially try and do both things. We try and say, okay. We have a model for a stochastic gravitational wave background from supermassive black hole binaries. How well does our data fit that model? We start there. And then we say, okay, now let's actually open it up to any spectral index. What spectral index do we actually measure in the data? So I think that is where we're doing both sides. We're saying, what support do we have for this model? And then we go and we say, how well can we measure this does it fit with what we expect for this source? Or do we need to change our model? Do we need to 
consider other sources of stochastic gravitational waves? Or do we need to consider a different evolutionary track for supermassive black hole binaries, which is what defines that stochastic background spectral index? All right, I'm going to try to do two things at once. And one is, uh, I'm going to try and ask you a question where I explain this back to you to see if I've understood it correctly. But the other is, I'm going to try to translate this into plain English so that everyone listening along will, uh, will hopefully understand what you meant. So when you say spectral index, I understand that as you're basically saying, okay, um, there are going to be uh, gravitational waves that show up with a spectrum of different amplitudes at different frequencies. So when we say we're talking about a spectral index, we mean a spectrum that's tilted in a certain way that favors certain scales where that's where your maximum amplitude is and then it decreases uh, as you go to, say, shorter uh, frequencies. Um, but then are you saying, okay, we have a prediction for what we expect this to be if it's all due to inflation or if it's all due to supermassive black holes. But if we find that uh, it isn't well fit by one type of gravitational waves with one spectral index, either we see something like the spectral index runs, which means that the tilt is changing with respect to frequency, or we see it looks like it's actually a superposition of multiple spectral indices, which is another possibility, uh, then we would want to look at the more complicated things. So is this basically what you're doing, that you're saying, look, we have some models for how we think this should go, but we're going to be open-minded and we're going to let the data drive us. And if we see that the spectrum of gravitational waves that we infer in terms of frequency and amplitude dependence, if that is different than the simple models, then maybe we really either have to revisit the models or we have to look at some sort of hybrid origin for these signals. That was a perfect translation of my description of a spectral index. Thank you for that. Oh, and I, I think that's exactly right. Basically, yeah, we want to try and fit the model and say, how well does this fit with our expectation? But also, we want to characterize exactly what the data are showing us. We don't want to throw anything out or make sure we're pushing our data into fitting our expectations. And this is one reason we really want to get people to join the community and we want our data to be open so people can use it and try out and see how well it fits their model. I mean, that sounds pretty cool. So what about what about the other option? What if you say, okay, look, at some point there are going to be binary black hole mergers of these incredibly large masses. Uh, is there a special type of signal that would appear in the pulsar timing data if such an event happened? Yes, and I'm, I'm glad we circled back around to this. There are two other, well, th there are many other types of signals that we look for in the pulsar timing data, but the signal from a single supermassive black hole binary system is one of my personal favorites. So before 
a supermassive black hole binary signal were to merge for a long, long time, as it's very slowly evolving, it will be emitting what we call continuous gravitational waves. And these are these steadily evolving, predictable ripples in space-time that when we sum all of them up, would make a stochastic gravitational wave background from supermassive black hole binaries. There's also the signal that could come about were the supermassive black hole binaries to merge, which will have a permanent effect on space-time itself, which we call a burst with memory. So there's a burst of gravitational waves at merger, which then permanently distorts space-time, and we could see through the pulsar timing array. Whoa, okay. Can you tell us how that happens? Because I was under the impression that everything that happens in terms of gravitational waves is a transient. Everything that happens is you have an event, uh, gravitational waves are emitted, they propagate outward at the speed of light. Once the event is over, um, you know, once those last waves pass you by, uh, that's it for your signal. What's different? What's different that invalidates that picture I just said? I think your picture is correct. And so I'm not a burst of memory expert, so I'm going to do my best with this explanation. But I think the general idea is that at the point of merger, the gravitational waves are at some status of stretching or contracting space in whatever orientation. And after merger, there's this very complex ring down process where space sort of returns to normal, but there was so much energy emitted that there is a permanent distortion. It ends up frozen a little bit in one of those states. And that signal ends up propagating outwards and affecting the space that we're living in. Oh, interesting. So is it possible then that if we're only looking in the aftermath of when one of these mergers had occurred, uh, that we can tell? Is there possibly some way to tell like, oh yeah, like one of these mergers happened because this imprint that we know how to predict is actually present? Yes. So I think we would need to get very lucky to have the effect passing through our galaxy while we were timing pulsars. But if it were emanating from a specific binary system that had since merged, we would see its effect in one pulsar and then multiple in as it passes through our galaxy. And the si signal actually in an individual pulsar looks very similar to a glitch, which you mentioned earlier, which happens rarely in millisecond pulsars, but can happen. And it changes the timing of the pulsar permanently thereafter, which is why it looks so similar. Okay, okay. If it's all right with you, I want to switch gears just a little bit uh, and ask you a very, very speculative question. One of the things that we talked about earlier was that when you have these, when you, whenever you have a binary black hole merger, but in particular, uh, when the masses are of the same order of magnitude as each other, and in particular, when they both have large spins that are aligned in a particular way, 
uh, it's possible for these black holes to merge and get a very large uh, kick to their post-merger velocity, uh, that they will get kicked and move off at some remarkably rapid speed. Um, we have at least one example of where this happened in the universe, and it ejected a supermassive black hole from the center of its galaxy. Now, when we look at all of the supermassive black holes that we found, we find that among all of the ones we've detected, the Milky Way's supermassive black hole is somewhere in the bottom 10. It's somewhere in the, this is one of the 10 lowest mass supermassive black holes in the identified universe. Could this be some indirect evidence that at some point in its cosmic past, the Milky Way's original supermassive black hole um, merged with another black hole, uh, possibly from a cannibalized galaxy, um, and was ejected, and the reason that in a galaxy as large as the Milky Way that we only have a 4 million solar mass black hole is that's all we've had time to regrow in the time that's passed since? Oh, that's very interesting. I'm thinking really hard. I think... Hmm. I think one thing that would need to happen for that to have been the case is the Milky Way would be really disturbed because to have two black holes that are big enough to then merge and kick out a huge black hole, they were, those would be two big galaxies that merged that each contained a black hole, came together, formed a binary. And at least in my imagination, the Milky Way would look quite different like we we can trace back some mergers of small galaxies interacting with the milky way and the, even those have huge effects on the milky way itself so i think we would need to think about what would the milky way look like if it had undergone a major merger like it will after it merges with andromeda in billions of years right right so the biggest the two candidates I know for the biggest merger in cosmic history uh, of our galaxy happened somewhere on the order of about 11 billion years ago and was either the merger of the Milky Way with a galaxy known as Gaia Enceladus or a galaxy known as the Kraken. Um, and I think think in the most extreme case, uh, the galactic mass ratios of the proto-Milky Way to that early galaxy that would have merged would have been like a three to one, that the Milky Way would have been about three times as massive as the, uh, the next largest thing that it merged with. So I don't know if that could have done it. I don't know if 11 billion years was long ago enough that, okay, maybe we would still look like a quiet spiral galaxy today. Um, this is this is all speculation on my part. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing to think about. You know, I would call a three to one mass ratio pretty equal mass. But like I said, this isn't my area of expertise. But it's really interesting to think about. Imagine what could have happened. 
Yeah, well, we'll we'll leave it on the table as a not yet ruled out by the two of us possibility. Sounds good. All right. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't have an appreciation of until they've done it that that you've gone and done now is um, you work as part of a large scientific collaboration. And yet the work you do for that collaboration is in many ways uh, relatively self-contained. Like your work can proceed, you know, in conjunction with the rest of the collaboration, but you work on things that don't necessarily require the intervention of the rest of the collaboration. Uh, so can you tell us in your own words uh, what it's like to work in a large scientific collaboration uh, in your specific instance? That's a really good question. And I'm really interested for you know more people to understand you know how science gets done. How do all of these results actually get made? And more and more today, this is happening on the behalf of many people. I mentioned that pulsar timing arrays were a very long game. We've been timing pulsars and combining data for 15 years now. I wasn't around for all of that. I only joined nanograms about five or six years ago. Well, you don't have to apologize for your birth year. <laughs> I do appreciate that. But even within the collaboration as it is today, we, we talked about a few things where I simply had to say, you know, I'm not an expert on this aspect of pulsars. I focus more on gravitational waves. And it's the collaboration that really allows me to do that. One area of expertise really can't exist without the other. And there's a lot of pulsar science that wouldn't happen unless we had all come together with this hope of detecting gravitational waves. So it's you know, hard to manage sometimes because there's a lot of people to connect and coordinate, but it's really a benefit because we're all working together for a common goal. And that allows us to go split off in our unique interests. So when we talk about your particular unique interests, um, what is it for you that stands out where you're like, you know, if my research could help contribute to us understanding this, here's the impact I'd like to have. The impact, at least, you know, within my field, I would really like to have is helping us get a better view of the big picture of supermassive black hole binaries. I mentioned that the particular gravitational waves signal that I specialize in is continuous waves. And one unique aspect of looking for a continuous wave signal is that those supermassive black hole binaries will exist in that state for a long time. What really helps us is the fact that because they're existing in that state for so long, there's a chance to look for them electromagnetically as well. We can see supermassive black holes in the form of quasars that are actively accreting material and if there are two of them, we might be able to see that. 
I really hope that my impact would be to help bridge those two types of observations and get us toward a multi-messenger detection of a supermassive black hole binary by combining gravitational waves with those light-based observations to get the full picture. Now that's that's an amazing dream. You know, when we detected the first gravitational wave signal from two merging black holes, um, I thought it was going to be a very long time before we realized the dream of doing what you call multi-messenger astronomy. Uh, and multi-messenger astronomy is basically saying, look, the fundamental way we've almost always done astronomy has been with light, with electromagnetic signals. Um, but in 1987, we found a second way to do astronomy, and that was when a supernova happened in uh, the Large Magellanic Cloud, just about 165,000 light years away. Obviously, it happened 165,000 years ago and the light arrived in 1987. Um, it wasn't just the light that arrived. In fact, a short amount of time before the first light signal arrived, um, our particle detectors that had giant water tanks with photomultiplier tubes around them went off. Uh, they were nominally experiments to look for possibly decaying atomic nuclei at the time, but instead uh, these high energy neutrinos came in in a giant burst and they some of those neutrinos collided with the particles in these water tanks and we wound up detecting these cosmic neutrinos from a supernova explosion. So particles are another type of messenger from the universe. And since 2015, gravitational waves have been another messenger for the universe. Uh, in 2017, we saw our first neutron star, neutron star merger with a gravitational wave detector. And less than two seconds from the merger of the gravitational uh, signals, from the merger of these two neutron stars, we saw blip, we saw a gamma ray burst signal. So that was our multi-messenger signal that we got it in gravitational waves and we got it in electromagnetic radiation. And we were able to identify what galaxy it was in. And we did a whole host of like 70 plus observatories that did electromagnetic follow-ups. Uh, and it was a remarkable field day for science. You're saying you're actually considering that you could do this same thing, that you could do multi-messenger astronomy if you saw the right gravitational wave signal to say, oh, uh, maybe there's an event happening over there that will give off something in somewhere in the electromagnetic spectrum that we can go and observe too. Absolutely. That's absolutely the goal so and that that can also happen in the reverse order as well so for example if one of the black holes in our supermassive black hole binary system is accreting material we would see, be able to see it electromagnetically as an active galactic nucleus but if it was orbiting around another supermassive black hole if we were tracking the brightness of that AGN over multiple years, we might actually see some kind of shift in the brightness. So maybe 
one year it was a little brighter and then periodically got dimmer and then brighter again. And then we would say, oh, huh, that's interesting. Maybe let's go look for gravitational waves coming from over there. And if we were to detect something, we would hopefully be able to put those signals together to learn more than we could from either signal. That's really cool. So one one question I want to ask, because you've told me over and over, uh, even though I keep attempting to push you in other directions, that the first signal we're overwhelmingly likely to see is this stochastic background of all the ultramassive black hole binaries combined. Assuming that is the signal we get, assuming we do see, in fact, that gravitational wave signal, and that's the first one to rise above the noise floor and declare, I am a signal, um, would the next step to be, say, okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to try and take this signal and characterize it and attempt to pull out what are the different components of this signal? Is it dominated by one supermassive black hole binary? And if so, where is it? And if we can pull one out, can we pull other out? others out? Can we identify black holes by mass and orbital period and all of these other parameters? And can we start making a gravitational wave map of some of the strongest gravitational wave signals in the universe at these frequencies? That's an excellent question. And I think all of what you said is going to happen, but parts of it might happen separately from each other, just because of the way we need to do the data analysis. The first thing we would want to do after we make a detection is characterize the spectrum. And simultaneously along the way that we've been looking for the stochastic background of gravitational waves, nanograv and other pulsar timing arrays have also been looking for continuous gravitational waves along the way. So while the signal will be the strongest for the stochastic background at very low frequencies, we're actually sensitive to gravitational waves in an entire frequency band from a few to a few hundred nanohertz. So these are gravitational wave periods of 15 to 15 years to a month or so. So as we're looking for the red noise signal at the lowest frequencies, we can also search all of these frequencies independently to see if there's any evidence for a continuous gravitational wave that's poking above either the stochastic background or the noise in our detector itself. So like I said, this is one of my specialties. I'm currently leading the effort to look for continuous gravitational waves in NanoGrav's 12 and a half year data set, which is nearing completion. And hopefully someday soon in the future, we'll be able to find something, whether or not we see the stochastic background, but we have learned we really need to be careful to consider everything that can be in our data because we don't want to get confused. You know, is this is this the sort of thing where as your data gets better and as you have it over longer baselines, um, even if you don't see a gravitational wave signal that peaks out above the noise floor, 
is that going to be informative in some way? Is that going to allow you to place constraints on the number and population density of supermassive black hole binaries that exist in the universe? Absolutely. So that's one of the best things that we've been able to do by placing what we call upper limits. So by placing an upper limit on the amplitude of, for example, stochastic gravitational wave background, we can estimate how many supermassive black hole binaries there must be in the universe, or at least place a constraint that there's not a ton of them. For when we think about continuous waves, what we can do, for example, I, I mentioned our efforts in multi-messenger astronomy. If we have a supermassive black hole binary candidate that we've discovered electromagnetically, we can go look for it in gravitational waves. If we don't see it, we've still learned something. We've learned that it can't be as massive as our noise floor is limited to. So my first project was setting an upper limit on a specific supermassive black hole binary candidate. So we learned it has to be less massive than about one and a half times 10 to the nine solar masses. That's actually pretty significant. We see plenty of black holes that are well in excess of that mass. Yes. And one caveat of that is that this is a limit on that parameter I mentioned before called the chirp mass. So the total mass of the system could still be quite large, but if it's an equal mass binary, we know that it can't be bigger than that. All right, and that's and that's pretty good, right? That's that's at least a nice rule of thumb for the chirp mass, right? Is if you're if you have equal mass or even mis mismatched black holes, um, you know the chirp mass. Um, is going to help you set a limit on the mass of the secondary black hole. It helps you set a limit on the mass of the smaller one. That if you're, if you say the chirp mass has to be less than a billion solar masses, you know you don't have a 10 billion and 10 billion solar mass black hole orbiting each other, or a 100 billion and a 10 billion solar mass black hole orbiting each other. Exactly. And this is one of the areas where multi-messenger astronomy can be really helpful because electromagnetically, we can estimate the total mass of the central compact object, probably a black hole, in a galaxy. But if that black hole were actually two black holes, we would need something else to actually measure the masses, like gravitational waves. It also really helps us because we've been able to tune our gravitational wave detector toward this specific galaxy, which really helps both our data analysis as well as our sensitivity. That's really cool. So let me ask you, let's assume that um, Nanograv, IPTA, and all the other pulsar timing away projects continue at at least the current precision, possibly even better precision uh, than, than they've done. Uh, by the time another decade goes by, um, what would you hope would come out of this line of research? Hmm. It's hard to put a guess on when we will make any given detection 
But I think what I would really like to see is an effort in coordination between the different types of observatories that can monitor these objects. Like you said, we've been working on timing pulsars and looking for gravitational waves for a long time. And there are other observatories who have been monitoring supermassive black hole binaries electromagnetically for just as long. And like you mentioned earlier with the LIGO double neutron star detection, a huge number of observatories had to work together to make that multi-messenger detection. So whether we've detected a gravitational wave or a continuous wave from a supermassive black hole binary or not, I would really like to see the low frequency gravitational wave community work together with other types of observatories on that same level. You know, I, I agree with that completely. I think that's a wonderful thing to look forward to. There are a lot of people who are outsiders to fields like physics and astronomy who look at large scientific collaborations like the LIGO collaboration or look at something like uh, the collaborations working at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. And they, as outsiders, see like, oh, these are environments that, that stifle innovation. And these are environments where it's all driven by, by groupthink and inertia and funding. Um, and I don't see it that way at all. And I don't think you see it that way at all. Um, is there... Uh, is there something you'd like to communicate about why this type of collaboration building and why this type of uh, taking large sets of data together that uh, people who work on different aspects of it can, can sift through and synthesize together? Can, can you talk a little bit about why that's so valuable to a scientist? I think one of the most valuable aspects of that is, you know, it's hard to make a name for yourself in those big crowds of scientists all working together for a common goal. But on the flip side, in a field as varied as gravitational wave astronomy, there's a niche for everybody. So I really enjoy being able to work on my particular specialty, multi-messenger astronomy, but also be able to contribute to the big overarching goal of starting with these stochastic background searches. So it really helps you branch out and also have the expertise. You can always find somebody to talk to. You can always find somebody to start something new with, and you will always have that group for support. I mean, I think, I think that's a wonderful message. Caitlin, this has been a fantastic and far-reaching discussion, and I'm so glad we've had it. Uh, before we let you go and close out the podcast, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? If anything, I suppose my final thought is to always make sure you're looking for everything possible that's out there. You don't want to close your eyes to one possible messenger because you're focusing on another and you know, always keep your horizons broad. Well, thank you. That's a lovely message and one that really inspires us to say, hey, whatever you expect to be out there, don't let that be the only thing you're looking for. Keep your mind open, keep your eyes open, and let the data take you 
wherever it's going to. So thank you to Dr. Caitlin Witt, incoming postdoctoral researcher at Northwestern's Sierra and Adler Planetarium. And thanks to all of you out there for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible thanks to the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, George Jeff Boutel, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, John Mithot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expeditions, Sea Green Mango, Stefan Bernegger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech LLC, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Kilia Opu, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Teixeira, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rick Baker, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, The Human, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Benhead, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, George Hampton, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Serzakian, Steve Shaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Tommy White, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.